they're out there constantly talking to everybody in their sector who has an opinion, listening to it and evaluating it. So they're not they're not just sitting back and, and sort of reading the newspapers. They're actually out there at the grassroots. They're talking to investors. They're talking to buyers. They're talking to agents, valuers, um, you know, quantity surveyors, builders, and just asking the right questions. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 56. Thanks for joining me. I've got another sensational chat coming up with past guest Dan Holden about the state of the lending market and what's ahead for 2019. Dan is joined by his chairman, Steve Wilshire, and together they bring an enormous amount of finance experience to the discussion. I know you love a finance conversation, and this one is chock full of tips and ideas. Just before we get to that, here's a quick project update. Not too much to report since last episode. We're still waiting to hear back from Council following our submission to their RFI letter. With my other project, I've been working with the architects on the interior design and renders to support the marketing campaign. That is coming along nicely. I'm really happy with how they are looking. I've also been speaking with consultants about joining the project team so that we can get the construction documentation completed. And don't forget, if you're keen to learn how to develop property, then email me about the Property Developing Mentoring Program that is available to help you successfully kickstart your developing career. Drop me a line at justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I'll send you some information. Okay, let's move on to the discussion with Dan and Steve from Holden Capital. Given the dynamic nature of the current lending market, I thought it would be helpful to speak with them about what they are seeing in the money markets, the impact of the Banking Royal Commission, and what they expect for the remainder of 2019 from a finance perspective. We also talk about what developers can do to thrive in this environment, and some great tips for how to set your developing business up for success. Without further ado, let's hear from Dan and Steve. Well, Dan Holden and Steve Wilshire, welcome back to the Property Developer Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Now, our, the, our listeners will uh, will remember you, Dan. You've been on a, a couple of times, but Steve, I think this is your first time on the show and you've got a, a serious background in finance, having done 26 years at Macquarie, a couple of years at ANZ, and I think five years at Holden Capital. So, you bring a wealth of finance knowledge to the table today. Well, I've been around a while, I guess, and that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm the old timer in Dan's team. Well, we'll uh, we might touch on some of your stories or your feelings about banking and certainly what they're going through in the wake of the Royal Commission. But Dan, you've also been busy since the last time on the show. I think you've expanded the business. You've got a couple of new locations. I think you've made it into the hottest men in Australia under forty or some kind of list like that. Yeah, mate. Yes, we uh, yeah we've been growing. We've put put a few more guys on uh, in the team and or guys and girls, uh, and definitely doing projects all around the country. Uh, been in Perth, Sydney, Melbourne all in the last month. Um, and yeah, there was a list top one hundred entrepreneurs in Australia, uh, something like that, which I um, was number thirty something in the, in that. Yeah. And also our business got number thirty four in the yeah it was number thirty four. In the 100 and number 34 in the BRW Fast 100, fastest growing com- companies in Australia. So that was pretty cool as well. Oh, that's exciting. Well, congratulations to you on your achievements. And today we're continuing the conversation about finance, which always seems to be interesting and certainly 
it's, uh, times are changing and it's a dynamic environment. So I thought, who better to talk to than what's happening in the finance game and the markets than uh, than the two of you? So let's get straight into it and get your thoughts on how you're seeing the state of the East Coast markets, which I guess would be Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. Is there more declines to come or are we bottoming out or what are you seeing? Look, I might take this one um, because I suppose I've seen a, a fair few cycles uh, over the years. And the way I see it is if you put aside the economic uh, influence, I mean the, the unusual economic influences of, say, the GFC and, and other previous situations, the cycles really don't change. Um, they just become a, a little bit deeper uh, or flatter depending on timing and how heavy those influences are. So in real terms, um, we're seeing the normal cyclical markets on those three uh, marketplaces. Um, And it's not unusual to see something like we're seeing in Sydney where a a market that's missed a previous cycle for whatever reason goes a little bit harder, a little bit deeper, uh, and then has to readjust. And we saw a similar situation uh, in Queensland uh, back in the 90s where the rest of the eastern seaboard took a, a bit of a, a climb, but as a result of an unusual situation, there'd been some overbuilding uh, in the Brisbane residential market. You totally missed that cycle and then caught up uh, with a vengeance going into the early 2000s. So uh, I guess what we're seeing in Sydney is the same situation. It, it was a market that missed a cycle uh, and then went very, very hard, very, very strong, and has probably overshot, and, and everyone was expecting it to overshoot. Uh, and now we get that that trough where it, it just readjusts itself. And Melbourne's going through a similar thing, but to a, to a much lesser degree in terms of the impact. So they're just currently out of cycle with Brisbane. Um, that happens from time to time. Uh, and we'll just see the normal adjustments to those marketplaces over a period of time. Brisbane had a small downturn two and a half years ago where there was a bit of an overbuild in the uh, apartment market. Um, The banks put the clamps on that uh, and that had overshot a bit. The same situation applies. So these are normal market movements uh, and really developers and investors uh, simply need to have a look at the market fundamentals in each of those to sort of ascertain where they're at and then determine their strategy accordingly. So are you thinking a little bit further to go until they bottom out in Sydney and Melbourne? or I don't think there's any question they've got a ways to go. And, and we'll, we'll sort of talk about other influences. I mean, you know, we're coming into an election. Um, there are other potential economic impacts that are likely to, to have a, an effect on those markets. But I think we've probably got a ways to go on Sydney. I don't think it's anywhere near bottomed out yet. How deep it goes is a question. I'm not sure that you're going to see massive falls from here, but you're probably going to see a little bit more of a fall and certainly a, an extended period of stagnation. Melbourne, I, I'm, I haven't got enough information coming through yet to sort of give me a clear, uh, I suppose, uh, opinion on that yet, but I suspect it will also continue to, to fall, albeit I think I'm expecting it to be a bit more gradual. Brisbane, on the other hand, um, I think is probably in a very good position. Uh, its economy is improving. Uh, there's growth in the employment. And because of that uh, affordability gap between Sydney and Melbourne, Sydney in particular, um, the traditional 
cycle where we see people selling up in the southern states and using the equity in their properties to either buy into a business or seek employment and upgrade their, their residential position and their lifestyle, that's certainly going to start having an impact in the Queensland market. We're already seeing it uh, to some extent, but I think that will continue on for the next two, two and a half years. You mean in terms of southerners not having as much equity or as much money to play with when they move up north? I, I mean cashing out. I mean, not notwithstanding that the market has has fallen, there's still well and truly a lot of... Uh, equity locked in if they if they can sell at the right price, at a price that suits them, and even if it's discounted from, from where it was maybe six months ago, it still represents a big affordability difference between the Sydney market and the Melbourne market, which puts serious equity in their pocket when they head north. And I think you'll see it in the retirees as well, that they will start to come again in particular, but I think young families as well, because of the employment situation improving in Queensland. It's part of the usual cycle um, that we've seen before and we're starting to see it again. The numbers are reflecting it. And how are your clients seeing their off-the-plan sales in those markets? Yeah, look, that has slowed fairly dramatically. Um, you know, we, we, We've been looking at markets that have been very much investor-driven for the last 10 years post-GFC uh, and obviously a large proportion of that was off the back of Chinese investment, particularly towards the end when the Australian investors sort of withdrew, but the, the market kept on going. And we're now seeing a, a market that is probably more reflective of where we were 15 years ago with, with some modest investment, but largely an owner-occupier driven market. And that sort of has two impacts. One, you'll see much slower pre-sale situations, and then once construction actually starts, um, the sales rate uh, slows and then you have a, a second go when the, when the project is finished and those who either chose not to participate because of you know, prospective uh, tax reasons or whatever, didn't want to do a pre-sale, will then come in because they want to see it, feel it, touch it. So it becomes a two-part marketing stage and we're starting to see that in some of the transactions um, that are coming across the desk, that uh, there's that initial push and then you construct and you, you get some sales but it's modest during the development period uh, and then there's a surge at the end when people can see the finished product. So we definitely moved to that more traditional type selling market. And so what are you seeing or hearing or your clients are doing in that selling phase through either pre-construction and through construction? Are they having to introduce any special tactics or approaches to get sales across the line? Because what I'm hearing is that it's hard to get ink on contracts in a, when the market's sliding and it's difficult to get fun, uh, money for consumers. Yeah, not, not seeing any sort of um, Mercedes-Benz being offered or anything like that with every sale. There's, there's not that sort of strategy, which was more investor. Um, I think, I think, again, we're going back to traditional markets where you've got to engage the right sales team to take it on, which means a, a genuine marketing and sales campaign uh, where you've got good operatives who know how to close sales rather than people who just sort of turn up with a contract and ask them to sign. Um, you've got to go back to old-fashioned selling. So I think those that are successful have either got in-house teams that are good at that um, or they're engaging with the right sort of agency firms who can provide that service.
that's the challenge, I think. Yeah, so I think there is a bit more sales skill required now than there has been over, say, the last three to five years when everything was selling. You didn't necessarily have to be particularly skillful at off-the-plan sales to, to get projects across the line. That's exactly right, and I think that's that's the challenge for, for the developers today is to find the right team, um, either, as I say, bring it in-house or engage the appropriate agency firm um, that have that skill sets, and some of that's been lost in the industry, so it's got to be relearned. So I guess that the guys who've, who've got the experience from the past, um, they're going to be uh, in high demand, I would expect. And uh, are you finding that developers are having to or are willing to eat into their margin in order just to get a sale and get the project finished? I'm not really seeing any evidence of that. Are you, Dan? I haven't seen any of that. I've seen one of them being offered up here in Brisbane where the developer had the last four to get in an 80-unit complex and was offering, you know, buybacks and whatever kind of, you know, last-minute tactics to get it done. Uh, but I, that's the only one I've seen, uh, and it wasn't a project we funded. It was one I heard about. So, no, I'd say the answer is no. Um, but I have seen a little bit more uh, hurry or rush to get rid of the last couple of units in a project, um, and we see that more so now because we're doing a lot more residual stock funding. So, you know, build 70 apartments, there's 10 left over or 20 left over. We'll provide a loan against that. By the time you've gotten to the end of 80 units, you're generally pretty fatigued with it and just want to get on with life. And I'm seeing a few of those kind of get pushed out at at a, at a bit of discount, uh, not necessarily bulk sales and the big 20 30% discounts that we've seen in previous cycles, definitely nothing at that uh, grade, but definitely a push to just clear, clear it out, get it done, move it on. Um, you know, you've got to think property developers are property traders. They're not collectors. They're not trying to keep it on the mantelpiece. They're trying to get it moved and get on to the next one. So I think that's more a case of um, just get on with it than um, uh, trying to make it a, an attractive proposition. I think it's already attractive. It's a case of price and getting it moved. And that's probably more reflective of, of what we're, we're seeing at the back end of the previous cycle, which is more mm. of the investment stock. Correct. Um, we're still yet to see... The, the more owner-occupied focused stock sort of come through. So, um, yeah, it, that's going to be interesting to observe over the next 12 to 18 months as to how they do deal with it. Yeah, so it was funny how many developers went from uh, having investor-grade stock to suddenly overnight being focused on owner-occupier uh, product. Yeah, it was a pretty rapid transition. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very keen to hear your views on the fallout from the Banking Royal Commission because it's only been a couple of weeks now since the commissioner handed down his report. What's your thoughts on that and what you think the impact's going to be on developers, brokers and then also the residential lending impact? Well, if I knew the answer, I think I could uh, use it to my advantage quite uh, in a number of ways. I, I think it's fair to say I'm, I'm reading and sort of listening to to everything I can get my hands on just to get a, a handle on it. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it actually plays out. I mean, obviously, the housing sector is, is very much keen to see what happens with the broker st- structure. I mean, in real terms, I don't see it changing that much. Um, notwithstanding some of the language in the the report itself, the reality is that the banks don't want to re-engage a whole team of uh, of uh, employees who are going to be out there spruiking their product. Um, 
they've been very happy to see that that process, that business development process transition to a broker network um, because they didn't want to carry the cost. I mean, it's it's nice for them when, the, when they want to get their mark product out there, they engage the brokers. When they don't, they just don't engage with them and, and that's it. I mean, it's, it's a no cost to them. So I think the brokers are now the oil that really keeps that market moving and I don't think anybody wants to see them out of the market because I don't think it's going to work any other way. So I guess what we're probably going to see is that certainly trails are going to die um, or be totally restructured in a manner that satisfies the, the Royal Commission in terms of the motivations behind them. Um, so I think there'll be a strong fight to retain the broker industry and protect it, um, but to make it more accountable. Uh, and the banks will happily support that because they'll still want them there to uh, to bring them the business, um, but to also do it in a way that, that satisfies everybody and uh, means that the ombudsman isn't uh, quite so busy as he has been. <laughs> yeah, so well, I, I'm expecting that. I was, was going to say, I, I also see trails uh, going by the wayside. I don't. I think that's a hard barrow to push uphill to convince the community that uh, they're worthwhile for brokers. And well, I, there's a way of structuring them that you could probably keep them, but I, I don't think they'll go that way. Yeah. I, I think they will just hit it on the head yeah. uh, and make it very much an upfront performance-related outcome, which is fine. And, and that's pretty much where most of the commercial brokers operate anyway. Um, some get trails, but um, it's, it's not as significant. Uh, and it's it is very much a, a performance related. You, you you write the deal, you get the the transaction that the client is looking for. Everybody is satisfied with the outcome. You get paid accordingly. Fee for service. Yeah, I think uh, the I think the residential brokers it'll end up being that the this is so called upfront cost will just get rolled into a settlement figure and yes. paid out by the bank at settlement time. Yep. So that exactly. people won't have to dip into their pockets like what is being threatened I, I don't see that coming about yeah and look it, but it's going to take time to work this out and, and they'll they'll want to put the appropriate checks and balances in place because the market being what it is there's always going to be somebody out there who comes up with a clever idea um, that maybe circumvents some of the intention of, of whatever legislation they bring in so I don't think this is something they're going to rush down the hill to to do um, I think most Parties understand um, that the, the structure as it is, is very necessary um, to make sure that the market continues to move smoothly and any changes they make will have to be very carefully thought through. And I think that's why we've seen the, the Royal Commission probably more restrained than some were expecting in its, uh, its wording and its, its conclusions. Yeah, I'm thinking the banks are actually going to be focusing more on their residential lending and their commercial lending side because they didn't really get kicked that hard by the commission and I think they're going to be looking there, looking in that area to see if they can grow their business a little bit while they deal with the fallout in the other areas, the wealth management and those other parts where they were playing a little bit badly at times. Yes, and, and you're right, they have been kicked fairly hard um, and the government isn't going to change its current uh, pressure on them to reduce their exposure in the sector overall or to manage it. Um, so it's, it's a permanent restructure of the lending market in terms of property. Um, so those capital 
in positions that have been put on the major banks are permanent, and as a result, they have to manage their exposures, and the returns are, are unattractive. So it's not a market other than the housing sector, certainly in terms of on the, the construction side for the developers, it's not a sector um, that they really want to um, increase their exposure in. It's going to be one where they're, they're progressively retracting, and it's a flight to quality. So our developer clients are continuing to see that that pullback from the marketplace by the major banks. And they'll, they'll slip in and out when the weighting shifts, but maintaining that, that capital position that APRA is imposing on them. So they're no longer going to dominate that sector, particularly at the small end. Um, there'll, there'll be a focus on the blue chip developers where they can, as, as they say, they can get a better share of the wallet uh, with the cross-sell of their products. And so do you think that's leading to the rise of your your second tier or your private capital? Definitely. I mean, we're just seeing a, a proliferation of new lenders in the marketplace. I think we, we probably come across a new lender at least one a month emerges. Probably more. Yeah, yeah probably more. Um, and look, a lot of them are small and, and not having a major impact on the marketplace, but there is a constant flow of new players. Uh, and of course, the challenge for us is to make sure that they're capable and uh, can deliver before we, uh, we take them to our client base. And so is that a reflection on the strength of the market or the perceived, maybe it's not perceived strength, but just a belief that the market fundamentals are pretty solid across the Australian markets, so you can still do developments and the projects will sell and it should work out? Yeah. And I think it's also a, uh, a view that it's, for the risk, the return is quite good. So, you know, if the, the whole property market in Australia was tanking, falling off a cliff, there's no amount of return you could offer an investor or a lender to fund a project, whereas they know that it's goes in cycles and, you know, the markets have to come back and correct a bit rather than absolutely tank and fall off a cliff. So the pricing is your, you know, these lenders that are coming in or have been here for a while are getting almost bank quality deals at, you know, double-digit returns. And and I think the definitely some that we've seen in the last three to four months who have I guess, hit us up to say we're, we're here with 50 mil or 100 mil to get out the door, please help us. Quite a few of them are actually people we've been talking to for three or four years. Um, remember 2015 or 16 was when yeah. we first had the correction of the banks saying we're overweight in property development, we need to get out and we need to downsize our exposure. We then were holding capital then. Uh, we were on a plane every 12 weeks over to Singapore and Hong Kong, meeting with all these family offices and hedge funds and, and talking to these people about the opportunity in Australian debt space. Uh, we're now starting to see quite a few of them take us up on our previous conversations and say, okay, great, we've just allocated 100 mil, 200 mil, 300 mil to Australia to get out the door at you know double-digit return for essentially what is almost a bank quality risk uh, transaction. So I think we're seeing a, you know, when we say it's um, more than one a month, it's probably because of previous inroads and discussions we've been having for quite some time. But I think those guys are now coming in saying, hey, look, 
we do see it as an opportunity and potentially, I guess they're also seeing it now as a longer-term opportunity. You know, in 15, 16, uh, just because we were jumping on a plane regularly and saying having cups of tea and warm bottles of water doesn't mean that they're going to straight away write a cheque and also that it might have just been a knee-jerk reaction from the main banks here to limit or cut funding. Uh, it's now definitely constant and it's more and more of the projects around the country are being funded by uh, capital that isn't a major bank. So they're starting to see it and, and get excited by it and allocate capital to it um, and also uh, you know, are coming over here and actually writing checks, which is the big, the ultimate uh, you know, indicator that they're, they're interested in, in doing deals. So I think it's an exciting time. I say, and they, they do it without the, the requirement for the capital reserves that, that is hamstringing the, the, the banks. And that's the big difference. You know, it, it's no longer profitable for the banking sector to do a lot of this business because of the, the APRA restrictions on them in terms of the capital they have to allocate um, to protect their position, which none of the other lenders obviously have to do. Yeah, and when you talk about the exposure and you said that the big banks are pulling back from the smaller residential development, is there a sort of a, a number or a sector that they're moving out of? So if you're, you know, if you're doing three or four townhouses and maybe you used to be able to get a residential loan to cover that, I think those days are sort of behind us. They're not, it's not so much that they're pulling out of sectors. As I said before, it's more of a flight to quality. So all they're doing is putting the hurdles at a higher level for you to jump over. And if you can jump over, you'll get the business. They'll do the deal for you. But it just means from a risk profile point of view, their book is getting much, much lower risk and therefore it ticks APRA's uh, model box to get approval. Remembering that APRA is, is reviewing pretty much every month the loan books of all the major banks and questioning every decision they make. So there's no discretion anymore. It goes into a model. If it if it passes the the uh, the checklist in the model, then you, you get the loan. So all all they're doing is adjusting those risk hurdles to a point where the risk return ratio looks much more attractive, and therefore they can write the deal. And that, as Dan said, that just means there's a lot more deals now that were traditionally bank loans um, in terms of their quality uh, that are now getting set with non-bank lenders. And so some of those hurdles that you mentioned, what, what might be some examples of the, the hurdles that they're putting in place to make people jump over them? Oh, they're just not lending as much in terms of the total loan-to-cost ratios um, and obviously the, the big one that's been there for a long time uh, is the level of pre-sales required. I mean, traditionally, pre-sales were very much a, a, a tool used when you were selling into the investment market, but the, the banks were quite happy to lend on owner-occupier stock um, with little or no pre-sales, they're maintaining that pre-sale hurdle regardless today. And is, so there's no relaxation of these APRA requirements? I thought they were sort of winding them back ever so slightly. Not that I'm aware of. Oh, there's talk about it. You know, If you read the, the Fin Review and I guess some of the other media places that say that there has been some lo loosening. I mean, I don't know how you'd get that actual knowledge mm. publicly anyway, but... I guess there has been talk in the last, you know, 60 days of there being some loosening, but um, it's it's not something that we've seen immediately translate um, into loans being approved quicker or higher gearing or less risk or whatever. I think it's also probably just, um, Justin, worth clarifying 
the you know if we broke property developers up into three kind of brash uh, categories you've got your hobby developer which is your your mum and dad doing three townies or four townies they do one project a year they've got an income um then you've got your middle market private entrepreneurial property developer who you know probably has three, four, five, six, ten projects on the go at a time. They're doing it with their own capital or partner, capital partner like us. Uh, and then you've got your bigger corporate, which is your bigger family office, your small uh, syndicator REITs. So the smaller end that are doing three or four townies, they're like you say, up until lately they were getting away with calling them uh, home loans, investment loans, and, you know, if your banker was friendly, they'd tick the box at was basically a bit of a line, push it through and, you know, Bob's your uncle, you're on site pretty quick. Um, I don't see massive changes in that sector except for that it's just a lot more conditions precedent to getting your loan done. Obviously, the bigger end of town, which Steve's done a lot of funding in that space in terms of those bigger 300 mil, 500 mil revolving facilities, they've definitely gone through a, a bit of turmoil in the last three to four years. Um, and then the middle market entrepreneurial private property developer that we deal with on a daily basis is more, I guess, the general kind of conversation that we're having now, which is more the guys who are, you know, borrowing anywhere from 10 to 100 million per project. You know, they're putting in their own cash or capital partners, uh, passive equity from us. And, you know, they're out there trying to buy sites, you know, every other month. They're finishing projects every other month. You know, they've got five to six projects on the go at any one time. Uh, and they're the ones, I guess, who are most um, open to the fluctuations of the market in terms of the buyer demand for the end product, the capital availability, uh, and also, I guess, things like build prices going up or down and site prices going up or down. Um, so I think it's just worth clarifying, you know, those three different categories and, and the category we do with obviously is in the middle, that middle market property developer. I'd, I'd just make the comment too. My understanding is APRA are not changing their requirements. I think what we're probably seeing is the banks, um, as their books run off, um, and they're all in, in different sort of parts of the cycle, they've got their own cycles, so to speak, in terms of when they were competitive and therefore they were writing more volumes than maybe some of the others. As their book runs off, um, they can maintain a certain exposure to that market. So there'll be periods where they'll actually want to write a bit more business and then they can ease those hurdles that they've been imposing in order to write business and then restrain them again as they fill up. So I think you're probably just seeing a, a more of a, a relaxation of some of the hurdles to maintain market share and maintain the, the percentage of their book that's exposed to property. But the actual APRA hurdles in terms of the capital requirements they're not going to change. Okay. Well, yeah, I think I read t today uh, that Shane Elliott, the head of ANZ, said that they've probably been too risk-averse or too yeah. uh, tight in scrutinising their home loan applications. This is on the consumer side now because uh, I think home loan applications are down, success rates are down quite a bit, and that's obviously having an impact on the bank's bottom line, which is when they start yes. paying attention. Do you think that there will be some relaxation or uh, a different way of reviewing home loan applications over the coming year? Look, I think that's the same situation. There's a different sets of, set of rules that applies to that sector of the market. We've been talking about the development sector, yep. uh, which is much more 
I suppose, fraught with danger in the area where the government um, wanted to make sure that the banks were complying with the, the international standards in terms of their capital exposures because at the end of the day it's all about the government provides a bank a guarantee in terms of the solvency of those banks because that's the undertaking it gives to the to its electorate uh, no no government wants to be the one that has to bail out a bank um, and protect the mums and dad investors so they're they're shifting that risk back to the banks and saying, okay, you're going to meet the international standards in terms of your capital allocations and here's how it's going to work. So that's what we've been talking about in terms of the developers. On the residential side, it's very different because we're talking about an area where internationally the other banks don't play the same way ours, ours do. Uh, and the risk profile is a lot different and the I suppose the restrictions on that side are a lot softer. They're still being applied. Um, APRA still is obviously reviewing them, but I think what you're seeing there is that um, there's more flexibility for the banks to participate in that part of the marketplace. And I think Shane's probably just making an observation that they've, they've been tough. Um, they're now in a situation where they can probably increase their market share, and that means that they'll be a little bit more competitive in their pricing and and uh, conditions. So I think it's exactly the same scenario, but playing to a different set of uh, restrictions and I, actually i was curious to ask you steve as a former uh, bank side staff member what's, yeah. what's your sort of feelings being outside the the industry now that uh, the commission's been going on would be pretty tough inside the banks in terms of culture and how they're feeling about themselves at the moment i would have thought look it probably is um i think well hopefully um, it's having a bigger influence on some of the more senior executives who are uh, probably more responsible for the behaviour. I think to a large extent the, the average bank Johnny that turns up for work, I don't think it's going to change his role that much. Um, he doesn't have much of a say. Um, it's, a, it's a very siloed and rigid sort of structure. Um, bank managers even have had very restricted um, flexibility in terms of what they can and can't do. Um, so the decisions have been being made at, at the high end of the, the risk process for, for many years now. So it's more of a cultural uh, reassessment at the senior level that's going to be uh, impacting the banks, I think. I don't think it's going to be – the rank and file are not going to be impacted quite so much. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, well, I think that I was reading an interesting article the other day that was saying it's very difficult to uh, – create that change internally when you've helped create the situation so you you kind of need to bring outside people in to try and help change things so which will be interesting to watch over the next couple of years well it will i mean unfortunately you've got a number of or four four major banks who um sort of moved into the corporate banking sector uh, and there was an expectation that uh, salaries and packages could reflect what was being made in the in the old merchant banking type structures, um, and I think they probably got a bit carried away with it. You've already, I just want to, you've touched on uh, government regulation, and um, this is an important year for Australia in terms of there being a federal election coming up in May, most likely. What are you expecting? What sort of impact are you seeing that having on the market? Um, and do you think there's going to be any government intervention to stabilise what's going on across the property markets? 
I'm not. I don't know about you, Dan. I'm not seeing anything at this stage. I mean, traditionally, you don't really see an impact until the date gets announced. And once the date's announced, then then everyone everything sort of slows right down uh, until post election, and, and it, it slows in anticipation of you know listening to what the policies are going to say, and then you you know you adjust your strategy accordingly. But um, it's a, normally it's sort of just like a short term slowdown across the board while people wait to see which way the cards are going to fall. You agree, Dan? Yeah, I don't I don't see any major kind of. I guess changes or headwinds. I guess if you're a, you know, the the typical middle market developer doing your four or five projects at a time, you definitely want the election to be gone with, so you can see the sales rates get back into the uh, the normal rates and just get on with your with your job. I don't think too many of them are sitting around reading every policy and and going through it in fine detail. Uh, definitely, at least. As a cross-section of the developers that I deal with myself, I don't see too many of them getting heavily involved with it. I think a lot of them just wish it was over quickly so they can get back to life as normal and, and get on with it. Yeah. And what about intervention measures? Do you think there's going to be any anything rolled out, reintroduction of some stamp duty savings or anything like that? That'll be a challenge. Um, well, I suppose certainly... The Liberals have got their backs against the wall, so they'll be looking for something that they can uh, roll out to make everybody happy. What they can do in our sector, I don't know. I, I, certainly the, the old question of is anyone going to start playing with uh, uh, negative gearing, I don't see that being touched. Uh, I don't think anybody could afford on either side to, to try and tackle that one at the moment. I'm sure they'll talk about it and get some headlines, though. Yeah, well, the press will probably beat it up a bit. But, mm. um, no, I, look, I, I don't think there's going to be any uh, negative attacks on property at the moment. Given the state of the Melbourne and Sydney markets, that would be very dangerous politically. Okay, interesting. Well, I mean, usually it's the – well, it is the state governments that have the biggest uh, yeah. uh, levers to pull when it comes to – Interventions, anyway, it's not the not the federal level. Exactly. All right. Well, listeners, I'm here talking with Dan Holden and Steve Wilshire from Holden Capital. We're talking about the current state of the funding market and an outlook for 2019. Can I ask you what is the what's your view on how the current lending market is, particularly with your your commercial finance? Yeah, so I guess what we see from, I guess, looking back um, 2018 and, and maybe a little bit before that, it felt like it was a, a state of the, the developer-borrower, uh, you know, assessing lots of options and, I guess, adjusting their feasibility or outlook on that high cost of funding and a lot of them reluctantly sitting on their hands for a while and, and maybe eventually accepting that high cost of capital. It feels like in the last probably three or four months, I think um, October, November last year, we started to see a bit of a, a rush and a bit more urgency and a, and a little bit more of a, a sentiment of just, all right, let's just get on with it. Um, and what's interesting about that, I guess no one wants to pay more than they have to, but it's also a case of um, what suits the project, what suits the outcome for that developer. And if you look at a, a typical feasibility, whether it's got a 20 mil GR or 100 mil GR, and you actually break up the finance cost as a percentage, and 
um, for those estate master fans, there's a pretty little graph that pumps out of it, which shows the build costs, the land costs, the council charges, and um, you know the profit, and then the actual finance cost. It's actually quite a small portion. Mm-hmm. It's a small slice of that pie. So you take a funding cost of any project, and it's a couple of percent. So you then take that and slice it up and go, well, if I jump through all the hoops with a bank and I get the money at six and a half percent, by the time you uh, weighted average cost of capital, your line fee and your interest rate and your upfronts, it's generally five and a half uh, plus plus the, a bit of uh, line fee and everything, generally works out at about six and a half to seven percent. Um, a lot of people focus on the fact they're only paying two percent over BBSY, but then they forget about the the line fee, the upfront fee, and, and all the hoops they've got to jump through. You then change that to a 10% no line fee or a 9% with the two line fee and getting out of the ground immediately or with you know the few pre-sales you've got. It's actually not a major impact, but obviously no one wants to pay more than they have to, so they do a lot of hunting and, and trying to figure out the best outcome for them. I think we experienced a lot of that. Definitely since October, November last year, we've had a distinct shift of people um, coming back and saying, right, let's just get on with it. And it, it feels it's a bit more uh, momentum in terms of, like I say, property developers are property traders and not property collectors. So they just want to, you know, they should be wanting to just get on with it, get in the ground, lock in a builder at the fair and reasonable price, not necessarily the cheapest. Um, and I'd say similar with their capital that they've got to just figure out what's actually best to start with the end in mind, which is finishing the thing and getting it done, and then work backwards from there. And within reason, it's it's now a case of, of getting on with it. So I think what we've seen uh, is definitely a little bit of a shift in the, I guess, the commercial finance space. Um, uh, I guess it also couple that with the fact that we are seeing a few new entrants into the space, um, and that's providing a I guess a typical skirmish of underquoting cost of funds and just generally overpromising. Um, we also have a healthy amount of wholesale funds at present. So to clarify that, that's essentially um, larger family offices, uh, hedge funds, those start large chunk uh, investors who are providing capital into the smaller fund managers. Um, so there's plenty of capital on the sidelines, uh, and I do see it a little bit of a shift uh, in terms of where the actual, um, I guess, ebb and flow of that capital sits. It does feel like there's a bit of capital sitting on the sidelines at present. Um, and what that does, I guess, for our role is, you know, we play matchmaker in the middle, uh, and it makes it quite fun. And what what sort of loan amounts are you seeing or you're fairly consistently working on in that middle market sphere? Uh, so most so last financial year, I think we did three hundred and forty million across eighty six transactions. Uh, fifty eight of those were construction projects, so we're funding more than one project a week. Uh, across the business and the balance of those were either site loans or residual stock loans. So we're we're fairly active and, and I think that works out at about, I don't know, six or seven million bucks a loan uh, with some that are 25 to 40 million and then some that are site loans of two million which will roll into be a you know, $15 million project or whatever. So that's generally the, the sphere in which we play with on a day-to-day basis. We're certainly seeing um, a, a bit of a shift too in terms of um, as Dan said, 18 months ago, we were seeing a lot of site loans, predominantly site loans, as people were positioning themselves, particularly up in here in Queensland, 
um, we're now starting to see the projects, so the construction element of the of the transaction roll through. I mean, I, I think a lot of what Dan was talking about, we're seeing it in a more advanced form in Queensland because of the, the timing of the cycle here, um, whereas Melbourne and Sydney, with the pressures they're feeling, they're still sort of just starting to move into that, that approach. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot more site loan applications out of Sydney at the moment where people are either looking to refinance or acquire a site and position themselves. And are you finding many developers who are, say, bought sites in 2017 prices and are now, they've got their permits and they're looking to get started, but they're dealing with 2019 end sale values and valuations and how are they finding it? So we have seen, a, I don't know, probably three of those in the last 60 or 90 days. Um, and, and I guess we've got a, a bit of an unemotional, unbiased and, and pragmatic approach to that, which is what do you want to do, sit on it for another five years or do you want to build the project and sell the product and move on to the next one? Um, we're, we're pretty blunt with our dealings with the clients we've got and most of the time we say, mate, just because you bought a site for three mil doesn't mean it's worth three mil. Uh, but if, if I told you it's worth two and a half, is that your focus or are you more focused on getting the 15 mil project out of the ground and sold and finished and, and profitable? Uh, and a lot of those projects you'll find are still somewhat profitable. It's just that valuers have got to find a 20% return on cost to put in their report and if that means that you're slightly overpaid for your site, then you know it's 500 grand of sunk costs. It doesn't mean you've set fire to $500,000 in cash. It just means that essentially you've got a bit of a sunk cost in your project. You're still going to make $2 bucks. So let's get on with it and, and make it happen. And we've had a few of those, um, three that I can think of in the last kind of quarter, uh, and we've just had to have that hard conversation with the developer and say, do you want to sit around and, and you know, uh, shoot voodoo stabs at the valuer for not seeing your view of the world <laughs> or do you want us to draw down on this $12 million loan and get your thing funded and built? So it's a bit of a hard conversation to have, but if you have it in the right way, then you can say, well, mate, start with the end in mind and work backwards. Let's just get on with it. So, yeah, it is happening and we can either cry about it or get on with it. And what about in the settlement activity? Are you, are you hearing or seeing of settlements falling over or higher than normal fallover rates? Uh, nothing drastic, um, if at all. Uh, I'd say that, um, you know, we've seen definitely substantial delays mm -hmm. and by substantial I mean just uh, frustrating so um, you know you, you call for 25 settlements this Friday and nine settle and the rest extend and then the next week you know like you you kind of constantly every every settlement you're getting a, a wash of extension requests the day before or the day of um, but I haven't seen any fallovers in the projects that we've funded that have completed in the last six or seven months. Um, I've just seen a lot of lengthy extensions. Um, uh, so, yeah, overall there's definitely nothing drastic that we've seen firsthand. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because 18 months ago, if you had people who were looking like not going through with the settlement, you'd happily take it and know that you'd resell it probably for a higher value <laughs> than what you sold it for. I, th I think there's also a bit of a, um, uh, I don't know if it's, as deep as moral or ethical, but there's a bit of a, uh, you know, fair go thing with the developer. If someone signed up to buy something off you 14 months ago and they're a couple of weeks late to settle it because their bank has given them the runaround and, you know, they need 
bloody bank statements for the last 14 years of their life before they can settle, it's pretty rude if you just cancel and sell it to the next willing buyer. So I think there's just a bit of latitude in terms of it's not generally not the buyer's fault. It's just them jumping through the hoops and getting that reapproval in place and getting the thing settled. So I think um, most of the ones we've seen anyway, the developers have been pretty reasonable in letting it extend and getting it settled even if there was a bit of an uplift in, in price since they sold it. Yeah. And if the banks are starting to uh, have an appetite for some more lending, they'll, they'll move the hurdles down and it'll yeah. speed up again. Yep. Yeah, I always think it's probably a good thing to go through with your settlements if you can. Just, you know, you've got the, the seller already there. You've agreed to sell them something, so try and yeah. see it out. Be a bit patient. And then what about valuations? You sort of touched on valuations coming in maybe lower than what people hoped, expected. I mean, that's not <laughs> that's not totally unusual. Uh, yeah, look, we've seen a couple that have been, um, you know, below the price and that's down to the lender either still going ahead because they've got a solid borrower and it's not fully, fully geared. Um, some of them, you know, we've heard in as – Five, seven, eight, ten percent, um, but most of them still push on. Um, I guess depending on on the buyer channel, some of them can pull out. But we, again, we haven't seen anything drastic. Okay. And then, what about for the rest of the year? Are you, are you seeing thinking a drop in rates or? Um, I, I, ignoring, I guess, the RBA rate, which we see as stable and potentially uh, going down a little bit. I, I think more in terms of your question might be what's a developer going to pay for their cost of capital. Um, and outside the banks, I think we are seeing a little bit of a shift. Uh, and and I'd almost be bold enough to say it's potentially becoming a bit of a borrower's market. Um, we've seen over the last two or three years uh, it being, you know, developers trying to get capital and, and kind of having to take what they can get. Uh, we are starting to see uh, an excess amount of capital on standby or on uh, the sidelines in that wholesale funding market, a lot of a lot of lenders have gotten money back in the last three to six months and, and keen to get money back out the door and earning again. So I think I'll uh, go in on a bit of a limb and make the big call. It's actually becoming a bit of a borrower's market. We're yet to see that really translate into any significant price reduction uh, in the cost of capital. We've seen two of our lenders uh, move their rates down a bit. Um, but I think where we are seeing a lower cost of capital is uh, generally in the tops and tails of construction projects. So, you know, we're now doing sight loans at kind of eight and a half, eight ninety five interest rate, which you know I haven't seen uh, for a long time. We're also doing residual stock at eight and a half, eight ninety five interest rate. So I think there's a uh, uh, we are starting to see some pricing pressure, but it's not going to dr- dramatically. Uh, you know, come down by a couple of percent and make your feasibility start glowing up a big profit factor like it's going to be funded by a bank. But there's definitely a little bit of competition amongst those non-bank lenders. And I do, I guess, have hopes that there is more pricing pressure going forward. Um, you know, creating competitive tension and getting the best deal for the project is, you know, the aim of the game. And so in terms of if I was a developer looking at a project, I was thinking, right, I'm not going to get from the banks, I'm looking second tier or private or what, if I wanted to have a single figure rate, what sort of project does that look like? Uh, so our, our next step from bank funding is around about that 9%. We've just done a 
twenty million dollar construction deal at eight eighty, no line fee, uh, which is one of the I'd say better deals we've done in the last couple of years. Uh, that had pre-sales, you know, could build a good developer, reasonable location. Um, we've done a couple others at eight ninety five, but smaller loans. Um, it's a bit of a, uh, uh, I guess, an opaque patchwork in terms of the non-bank lenders it's not there's not one product fits all mm. um so that's why i say you know we've done some at the 20 mil space which are 8.8 and then we've done some at the sub 5 mil space that are kind of 8.95 um and then there's a you know depending on the particular whatever the dynamic is of the project will determine that and then you know there's some with with a bit of a line fee that might start from about the nine percent as well so that's where i'd say to work on your initial feasibility is the the cost of non-bank capital and then you kind of if you add more risk you add more to the cost of capital so you might be coming into an industrial project with no pre-sales in a slightly non-metropolitan area you might be at you know nine percent interest rate and three percent line fee um, but at least you're getting in there and, you know, if you've only got a 16-week build program to knock up a few tilt slab sheds, sitting on your on your hands for four months to get the pre-sales and save yourself 80 grand in cost of funds is, is you know, out, the cost doesn't outweigh the benefit. So, um, yeah, I'd say there's a, that's a bit of a range in terms of your best case. You're, you're almost bank quality and you just missed out for one or two reasons, right down to, uh, I guess, your worst case of just getting on with it. And what sort of level of pre-sales are you talking about there? Uh, so, yeah, anywhere from 50% debt cover to down to as low as minimal or no. Um, for example, if you're doing, you know, stage two or three or four of a project and there's market acceptance of the product, you've got a proven uh, sales record of settlements, um, you can get as low as no pre-sales, but it's it's unlikely. It's more more so that you're going to need to prove that the product is going to be accepted by the market is, is actually, you know, uh, as well as uh, exit, how am I going to get my money back? It's also show me that this product is saleable and I'm not I'm not pioneering some crazy product in the middle of nowhere. And it comes at a cost. If yeah. you want no pre-sales, you pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's more important than ever in the dynamic environment that we're operating in the developers are talking to finance specialists that actually understand and really know the commercial finance area because it's just it's it's getting trickier than ever and i know every mortgage broker out there reckons they know how to get a commercial loan but you really need it's a flight to quality as well just not from the banks but also with everyone on your team absolutely yeah, you've got to have good consultants to help you get it done yeah uh, and so what are you suggesting that developers do to survive or in fact thrive in the landscape that we're currently in? Yeah, so I'd see the word, um, I guess, survive as a bit glass half empty view of the world. Um, I definitely prefer to replace it with thrive. Uh, <laughs> I had to throw that in. There's probably some people out there that are sort of surviving. Surviving, yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Um, look, I think there's always opportunity in any market Um uh, I've seen you know, some developers I've worked with for uh, almost a decade now and I've seen them thrive in even you know, post-GFC, very tight uh, credit and very slow sales and you know, they've made possibly more money then and, than they did now because there was less competition and you know, every, uh, every dentist, doctor and accountant didn't think wasn't out there being a property developer. So I guess there's always pros and cons of any market. It's just picking a 
you know, picking something that you're good at and getting out there and doing it. So um, I wrote down here two notes. One is having a saleable product that can actually sell. There's no point uh, building your own investment rent-to-own product. It's, it's You want to trade it and get out of it. Um, and two is having a sustainable capital model, uh, one that allows their business to grow or slow as needed. So a successful business uh, needs to adapt and not, I guess, just take on projects for the sake of it, i.e. you've got to pay your overheads next year, so I need to make X amount of profit. You see some businesses get to that size and scale and it becomes a bit scary. They're taking on jobs f- just for the sake of it. So you need to be able to scale down. Um, and then conversely, and I, I think this is more where we come in as a capital partner to developers, is how do developers scale up? Um, how do they take on opportunities when they arise, not just when they've got money available? Um, and it's a common, I guess, phone call that we get is I've got this great opportunity but all my money's tied up in other projects and that's really where we come in to our forefront in terms of being a capital partner um, and we generally work with developers, I guess, that have got more opportunities than do capital. So that's not to say you've got no money, honey, and you've just found a site down the road. It's more a case of the guys who have got you know, one, two, three projects on the go um, and they've got a business model, they've got a um, – I guess a, I wouldn't say necessarily a niche, but they've got a particular product type that they've chosen to specialise in and do particularly well. They could be doing one or two projects at a time. Instead, they have a capital partner like us and then they can do four, five, six projects at a time and, and have four, five, six projects on the go at a particular time in different stages of the project. So, you know, one in planning, one in pre-sales, one starter construction, one late construction and one settling and paying back. And then that allows them to, I guess, repatriate their capital within their development pipeline as efficiently as possible. Um, and so some examples of that is you know, we work with a few developers on a, on a regular basis where they'll get a project to a certain point and then bring us in as a capital partner. And that will then uh, recycle their capital within their business to secure the next site. You know, I work with a few developers that have always got two, three million bucks on standby so they can go in and make cheeky turns on sites when everyone else is trying to buy it subject to the market coming good and subject to the Fin Review not trashing the market tomorrow so they can get them sold. These guys are coming in going cash seven-day contracts and buying. If you buy the land well, projects generally have a good way or a good start to them from there. So working with developers to get that capital model right. And so in answer to your question, how can developers thrive? It's having a business and a capital structure that allows you to scale up and scale down. Uh, and, and another, so yeah, think like an accordion, expanding and contracting without having to be, you know, sleepless nights and where do I find the money? Uh, and likewise, it's uh, being able to scale down so that you can uh, comfortably pay the overheads and keep the business going at a certain pace or slow it down even if you don't want to go out there and, you know, fight the good fight and, and have to buy things just for the sake of it. Sometimes you've got to sit on the beach yeah. and wait. Correct. Um, so I think it's more a case of how do they thrive and how do they make their business cycle-proof. Some people have counter-cyclical plays and they go and buy everything when everyone's hurting. Other people uh, are heroes in a rising market and take it on. I'd say focus on your business model. How can you make your business cycle-proof and how can you make fun when the sun's shining and also when it's cloudy and grey and that comes down to a good product and a good capital model that works. Just say I'd agree with that. I mean, over the years, 
the most the, the smart developers I've seen, the successful ones, have done two things. They've done their market research, and they really put the time and effort into it, so they they understand their market backwards. And as Dan said, they've got a real business model, not just a concept in their head, but a genuine one. They've sit, sat down, worked it out. It's on paper. Um, they constantly go back to it and rejig it. And the biggest part of that plan is their conservation of capital and how they map out the use of either their capital or other people's capital, as Dan just elaborated on. I think they're the two things that separate the guys who, who make it and make it well and everybody else. And how so the people that you work with that are doing that four, five, six projects, having you as a capital partner, how do you develop a relationship with them? Uh, it's usually just from, you know, I guess those early uh, interactions of doing a particular job for them on a kind of task basis or, you know, they'll come to us and ask us to quote the, for the funding on a project and they then work with us and I guess realise that we're fairly flexible in terms of the way that we can participate with them on the project. I mean, being a capital partner is all-encompassing, i.e. we're helping them settle the dirt from day one. Uh, we're helping them, you know, um, arrange the construction funding. We're doing, you know, mayors or pref equity top-up pieces um, either at the start or throughout a project. And then on completion, we're, you know, refinancing our capital and into a position of, you know, uh, first mortgage on a residual stock piece. So we're partnering with them right throughout the project life cycle. Uh, and I think that flexibility is that we can be fairly flexible with it. Where we really come into our own is with those developers who have, have you know, more opportunities than they do capital. Uh, like I said, they could be doing one or two with their own uh, balance sheet. Instead, they're partnering with us and doing four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, you know, we're, we've got one developer at the moment. We're doing uh, nine projects uh, in. Uh, you know, not, I was going to say back to back, but they're actually at at the same time. Um, you know, we're investing with them on on a on a journey and a pipeline, and uh, that's when we're really coming into our our element in terms of adding value to his business. He's now growing that business bigger than he had planned to and, and you know, our investors are happy and he's got a, um, you know, a good, good harmonious balance between risk and reward for him as well. So I think it's a case of uh, those particular developers who are either looking for growth because of a certain opportunity, a market opportunity or um, business opportunity. You know, we've worked with some people who have just left a big organisation and, you know, they're used to having dirty staff and, 10 projects on the go at a time. So, you know, just because they're starting out fresh doesn't mean they can't replicate that. We've worked with those guys um, uh, right up to, you know, I guess guys who have got an opportunity and they say, hey, can you help me settle the next site? And we go, well, we could, but it will be expensive. Why don't we give you some cash out of your current project, which is already half built, half sold, will be a cheaper cost of capital, and then you can go and settle that next site with your own money. But essentially, we're the ones putting in the money. We're just securing ourselves at the lower risk, therefore lower cost of capital um, structure so that that gets them the best return and gets us a safe return as well. And Steve, you mentioned about uh, the good developers are the ones that do market research and have a real business model. So how would... What is market, real market research or what does market, good market research look like and how do people develop a real business model? Well, I guess it depends on the size of your business and your resources, but it, it fundamentally means that they're out there constantly talking to everybody in their sector 
who has an opinion, listening to it and evaluating it. So they're not they're not just sitting back and and sort of reading the newspapers. They're actually out there at the grassroots. They're talking to investors. They're talking to buyers. They're talking to agents, valuers, um, you know, quantity surveyors, builders, and just asking the right questions um, to understand what are the market forces out there that are at play and and. Not just, as I said, what you read in the press tends to be the past tense. What you've got to understand is where's it going? What are the de- demand and supply is ultimately the key equation that's driving your product. You've got to understand what's driving the demand and what's the competition. What do they want? Is the competition providing it or have you got a better idea? So you really do have to get down to the grassroots and understand that. That's where I'm coming from. I think now we talked before about sales. Um, you've got to understand what does your buyer look like? What do they want? Is your product what they're looking for? And if it's not, what can you do to make sure that it is and it's better than the guy down the roads? What do you have to change? Um, and what's the cost of that? You know, it's 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 a it's a balance. You've got to understand that what the cost of delivering that product is, and are you going to get the return? Sometimes uh, what the market wants. They can't have because you can't deliver it for the right price. So, you know, then, then it becomes a question of compromise. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts to that equation. And the good guys spend a lot of time understanding it so they don't make mistakes on it because it's very easy to to just copy what everyone else is doing only to find that uh, you got to the party late and the market has moved and then you're stuck. And what about developing that business model? Is it sort of fumbling in the dark until you come across something or is there a straighter line you can follow to figure that model out? Um, I think one thing that I've, uh, I guess, maybe I've just copped a bit of it over the last couple of weeks, but it's it's guys who try and, you know, reevaluate the world based on an article in the Fin Review or something that, you know, probably hotspot Terry Ryder wrote or something that Matusik wrote. Like there's just there's a lot of chatter out there and I think having a you know a proper five year plan and not rewriting it every five minutes yeah. is is a real key to success for some of the better developers that we work with. They're they're unswayed by the the monthly ebbs and flows of the headlines that are are out there and they're just they've got their product type and they stick to it they're very good at it. They might deviate a little bit here or a little bit there but they go, you know, I'm the number one X townhouse, whatever product developer in this space, and I know my numbers well. I know my cost of construction. I know my GRs. I know the guys who are going to help me sell it. I know the guys who are going to help me fund it. And they they don't rethink their business model every day. They just they've got it pre thought out, and they go great. I'm going to get on with it. Um, and yeah, that's what I'd say is is uh, don't rethink your five year plan every five minutes. And I think what Dan just reiterated is they've done the research, not just about the product and the market, but also about their business, you know, about the cost of capital, where the markets are going, the economy. Their business plan reflects all the factors that will influence their return. And they could just as easily be, you know, not building houses. They, they could be manufacturing something else. Successful people in business have a business plan that's predicated on them understanding the whole process, not just a part of it. And, you know, that's something we come across from time to time. Some developers are, are successful because they get lucky, that, that they understand a certain part of it and their timing just happens to be good. You know, they might be a, a chippy who can deliver a good product. 
But if he, he got lucky on the marketing side, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. You've got to understand every part, every part of the process of development, which includes how to be smart using your capital, you know, understanding the market forces, understanding how to deliver the product. Um, and that includes, you know, taxation considerations, the whole business. So as I say, the smart guys take the time to, to educate themselves about the elements that probably aren't their strengths but become their strengths so that they don't get caught out. And if they don't understand themselves, they get the right people in. That's the other thing. You know, more often than not, you can't do it all yourself, so get the right support, be it consultants or employees, but bring in the, the knowledge that you don't have yourself and bring the whole bring the whole parcel together by bringing all those different elements together. And if you've got a strength in a certain area, get the right guy with the strength in an area that's not yours. So would that be your top tip for developers in the dynamic environment? I wanted to ask that. You've already sort of dished out a couple of gems there. I don't know whether you've got any others or one in yeah. particular. No. That's uh, don't write your five-year business plan every five minutes had a good ring to it. Pretty crass, but <laughs> <laughs> it works for me. Yeah, don't write it on toilet paper. That's a good uh, good tip. Yeah. Yep, and if you don't understand it, find someone who does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for sharing all that with us, Dan and Steve. If people are interested, they want to find out more about Holden Capital, where should they go? Yeah, so we've actually just updated our product guide, uh, which talks through you know uh, a development from start to finish. Like I was saying, the site loan, the you know construction piece, mares top up or pref equity uh, and residual stock, and commercial loans. So that's a forty-page booklet on our website. Uh, we put a lot of time and effort into it to help developers uh, with the various funding options. There's heaps of case studies in there of things we've recently funded. Um, and obviously we've got, uh, you know, talk through a live scenario, we've got uh, offices, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. Um, uh, we've got uh, Matt in Melbourne who you can catch up with. He's in Burke Street in Melbourne there. We've got Melbourne in Sydney. Uh, and obviously myself or Brett from our Brisbane office as a first point of contact to say good day to uh, talk, you know, talk through your feasibility, the reason why you bought the project, took it on, uh, and, and what you're trying to achieve out of your capital. And then we can come back to you with a few options and down some ideas around. Yeah, there's some other great resources on your website as well. I think you've still got your construction dictionary on there. That was a, a, yeah, a yep. great little uh, resource that I often share around. Yep, uh, that's still there and available. Absolutely. There's, there's a, a few few things on there that are worth a bit of a browse. We've got uh, we've been doing uh, on and off our own podcast series as well with some pretty successful property developers and, and people in the industry. Uh, we just recently did one with Charterkett Kramer out of Melbourne. They had some very good views on uh, valuations and their view of the world. So I'd recommend that that's worth a listen as well. Yes, yeah, so I was just about to suggest that. I actually really enjoyed that uh, discussion with, with them. This is yeah. quite, quite insightful into valuation. I picked up some, some good ideas or some good knowledge from those two. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, so you can catch Dan or catch the Holden Capital podcast as well, which is always worth a listen. So, guys, thanks so much for sharing your time and your insight with us today. It's always good to talk finance and property development with the two of you. No worries. Thanks, Justin. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dan. See you later. Yeah, mate. Bye. All right, there you go. Another trip down the gold mine. I hope you picked up all the nuggets that Dan and Steve offered up. It was certainly a great overview of what is happening with finance at the moment. 
Not to mention some great business ideas to help you take your developing business to the next level. Here's three things that I took out of our conversation. One, really understand your business. Steve mentioned that the successful developers he has worked with really knew their business and their product. They undertook extensive and ongoing market research to ensure their offering was in line with what the buyers want. They didn't just stick to what worked last time. They also understood their business model and didn't tinker with it every few days based on bad media stories. And importantly, they clearly focused on conserving and sustaining their capital. Two, consider factoring higher funding costs. Rather than hang around waiting for the cheapest finance deal, it may be worth including additional funding costs into your feasibility. It might cost you more in the long run waiting around for those pre-sales and for the bank to assess your application. So what funding changes could you absorb in order to get started or finished sooner? 3. Be prepared to adapt and act. Property and funding markets are dynamic, at any stage usually, so sitting around looking over your shoulder and waiting for things to get back to what they were is not going to change what you are facing. So I think it is wiser to weigh up your options, consider if you need a different finance deal, and take some action to get your projects underway. Be proactive and decisive. Okay, if you enjoyed that chat with Dan and Steve, then you may enjoy my earlier conversations with Dan in episode 35, where we discussed the funding secrets of elite developers. There's a a lot of different ways to look at a developer's pipeline and their business model uh, that can make a big impact on how much profitability they have and how much risk they have as well. And episode 14, where we covered clever property development funding tips, like how to use your capital effectively. We may restructure that project where they're only putting in 800 grand to a $10 million project. And all of a sudden, their capital now stretches further, that they can take on more, they can slot them in in a timely manner so that they're managing their risk and exposure to the market, um, and that's letting them grow. The content is still highly relevant today, so go back into the archives and take a listen to episode 14 and 35. All right, that's just about it. Remember to drop a comment in iTunes if you're enjoying the show. Thank you to those legends that have already done so. If you are pumped up and want to take action on learning how to develop property, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com to find out more about the Property Developing Mentoring Program. You can also catch me on Facebook and Instagram for my latest pics, videos, and developing news. And for all the past episodes of the show, head to propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, may you conserve your capital and deploy it wisely. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.